Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, and this week's podcast is close to my heart because my brother died of suicide 20 years ago. Suicide touches so many of us, sometimes we feel so hopeless, and it does not make any sense, but I believe hope is born from participation in a hopeful solution, and that's why my Paul Mitchell schools have created an open dialogue about suicide and why we raise a ton of money for organizations that promote awareness, support, and resources. I hope you'll enjoy and learn from this interview with suicide prevention activist Taryn Aiken, who brings clarity and hope to the often taboo topics of mental illness and suicide. When you're done, Please sign up for our mailing list on masterspodcastclub.com so you'll hear about the latest podcasts and other news. Hi everybody, Wynn Claybaugh here. Welcome to this issue of Masters, which by the way has been an interview that I have been thinking about and then planning for a very, very long time. And uh, once we jump into this, you'll understand why. Uh, Because uh, what we're going to address here today, the topics that we're going to discuss, maybe aren't the most popular. Some people would say that they're very taboo. And unfortunately, in society nowadays, are topics that we completely avoid. But that's not what Masters is about. You know, Masters is about sharing wonderful stories and victories and exciting Uh, happenings in the lives of the people that we interview. And then sometimes uh, they need to be more thought-provoking. They need to be more educational, things that are going to help us live better lives and be better resources and mentors to the people in our own lives, whether those people in your own lives are your own family members, your own circle of friends, or the people that you work with. For us to be advocates, for us to be uh, human beings, citizens that are aware of multiple topics, absolutely is the life that I want to live, and I have a feeling that many of you feel the same way, which is why you listen to Masters. So today I'm sitting here with Taryn Aiken, and what we're going to call her today is a suicide prevention activist. So Taryn, welcome to Masters. Thank you for having me. So Taryn is also a hairdresser, not that that matters, but I think it's kind of noteworthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, you've been a hairdresser for over 20 years, Yes. and uh, because of certain happenings in your own life, you have been called upon, you've been driven, so to speak, into uh, this world. I recently learned that you could have a job, which basically means it's a means to an end. Mm-hmm. So you were there to earn a paycheck, to make ends meet, and that's fine. Some people just have a job. Uh, some people have a career which means they looked for ways to advance themselves. They see within their career path that there's ways that they can improve themselves and excel Mm -hmm. in order to move up the corporate ladder, in order to make more money or to get the title. And then there are people who have a calling. So maybe hairdressing was (laughs) a career for you. I'm not going to put those words in your mouth. But I absolutely know that this new path that you're on is a calling. So, Taryn, again, welcome to Masters, and you know maybe we can just start this off with me reading a couple of uh, quotes that I have received from people sure. uh, based on your uh, recent seminars and trainings across the country. So, thank you so much. So, this came, somebody said, all my life, I've never known what it feels like to be loved by a mother, and I still don't. Taryn made me feel... Like even if I was feeling alone, I was not alone. She made me have different thoughts about myself. She made me realize that there is so much more to life than I've ever, ever thought. I did not have a chance to talk to her one-on-one, but listening to her made me feel a better person. Another quote came from, I had the pleasure of meeting Taryn Aiken just a few weeks ago. At first, I thought it would be just another morning with the guest speaker, but I was wrong. That morning changed my life. Taryn's story touched my heart in ways I didn't think possible. She is truly inspiring to women all over the world. Like Taryn, I have suffered with depression for a very long time. 
But she didn't make me think of my depression as a handicap. She inspired me to help others who also live with this. And the last one that I want to share with you, Tarrant changed my perspective on suicide so drastically. I used to believe that committing suicide was a sign of weakness and that it was a selfish act because they were leaving their loved ones. The way that Taryn put it made me feel awful about the way that I was thinking. She said that her father had committed suicide when she was a kid. She said he was a strong man and he had been battling depression for such a long time. He couldn't fight anymore because he was tired and weary. He wasn't weak. He just thought that the fighting had become too much. By the way, these endorsements and these uh, emails just go on and on that I've received about Taryn. Uh, this is going to be an emotional interview for me as well. Um, I lost a brother to suicide. And um, something as simple as, I used to say my brother committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And Taryn, you taught me that maybe there's a better language. Maybe there's a better way of, of stating those facts. Yeah. So uh, we have a lot to cover today. Well, I'm excited to be here with you. Thank you. Thanks, Taryn. So let's jump into this. Tell us about your personal story and why this became a calling for you. Sure. You know, from the time I, I can remember, uh, life, was, life was interesting and difficult. You know, I grew up in Utah, and at the age of eight um, is really where my memories are cemented that I have a foundation. And as a, as a girl growing up in Utah, I grew up Mormon, and at age eight, you undergo a, a lovely ritual called baptism. And as I experienced that in my religion, I remember my feelings being very conflicted. All of a sudden, now I was washed clean of sins and, and taught that there was a, a person watching over me and taking note of all the things I was doing, and, and I needed to live a certain way in order to get back to live with this person and see my family again. And and I remember taking that in and feeling really overwhelmed at that concept and not really understanding. And a few short months after my baptism, uh, I started being sexually molested by a neighbor, and not just a me neighbor. It was my, my father's really good friend's daughter. And when I share that, the fact that it was a woman, a lot of people look at me and say, oh. You know, the things that happened to me at that age were, were unspeakable and traumatic. And yet, my body experienced things in those events that confused me. So, immediately my brain went to a mindset of, there must be something wrong with me. I must be evil. If this God is up there taking notes and watching over me, he must hate me because I enjoyed my body felt things in this that it shouldn't have. And I remember vividly at age eight wanting to no longer be on this earth. I, I wanted to be dead. I wanted to be gone. It wasn't shortly thereafter that I found my father of his first suicide attempt. I would learn later. I found him unconscious in the bathroom and didn't understand what had happened. I remember getting my mother and the ambulance coming and taking him away. And then him coming back, and nothing was talked about, nothing was said. We just went on as normal, and, and that became a, a theme in my life. When, when bad things happen, we didn't talk about it, and we just went on as normal. Um, so my first suicide attempt happened at age 12, and, and I also ended up, from that attempt, hospitalized. That was one of many for me, so I, I know what that is like. I know what it is like to be in that dark, dark place where you truly believe that everybody would be better off without you that you are a burden to those around you because who you are is so awful and so disgusting. And I remember in that experience of being in the hospital, that was the first time I shared, you know, what had been happening to me. And sexually. this was at 12 years 12 old? 12 years old. And, and what, what response did you receive from the people that you were sharing this with? Were these trained individuals sure. that could understand mm -hmm. and believe what you were yep. saying? Because how often are people not believed yep, or just dismissed? Because as you said earlier, we don't talk about it. Yep. Well, and, and, and luckily for me, the therapist that I had at the time was, was a great man and, and did believe me. Um, unfortunately, when he asked me to share it with my family and tell my parents what had happened, it was dismissed, you know, as I'm sorry that happened to you, but we're just going to move on and pretend this never happened. And I know they didn't do that out of hurt or to cause me harm. I think, you know, as a mother and a father, not knowing maybe what to do and keeping up with the Joneses as we did back then, you just right. swept everything under the rug and 
and we just had to move on. And, and I remember learning a really powerful lesson that day. I learned that when bad things happen, nobody cares. So I, I want to interject here just to uh, maybe send out a, a um, call to action to people listening to this right now. Because already I have a feeling that there's somebody listening to this thinking, this does not apply to me. This is not anything that I need to listen to. This is not uplifting. This is not uh, wins normal, motivational, rah, rah, we can do it mm-hmm. message. So why are we listening to this? And I just want to put out a call to action to people that, again, this is something that people do not talk about. Uh, mental illness, mm-hmm. addiction. These are not popular topics. These are not sexy mm-hmm. within uh, the beauty industry or within any industry. And yet, if we were to do a legitimate, truthful poll of your circle of friends, Mm -hmm. I'm talking to you, the listener, if we were to poll your friends and your family members, you would be shocked to know how many people are suffering with, whether it's thoughts of suicide, mental illness, addictions, or just, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough, and like you said, the planet would be better off without me. You know, and I know it isn't a glamorous topic, and it isn't something, you know, I I share this quote all the time because I believe it to be true that, you know, we're not what happens to us, we're what we choose to become. And, you know, for a lot of years, that was my story. That was who I was, that that dictated who I thought I was, my value on this earth as I move forward in life. And I allowed that because I didn't know anything different. And unfortunately, you know, it, it took me to some pretty dark places where I learned a lot the hard way. <laughs> but, you know, for me, it was also an experience that taught me to have empathy and understanding for what I would then watch my father go through, you know, the majority of his life. Um, you know, my father did take his life. He died by suicide. So when you mention the terms that we don't use, you know, committed is a term I don't use because to me it has a negative connotation as if they did something wrong, like they committed a crime. But by becoming educated about what caused him to take his life and the things that had led up to that point, just like in my own life, you know, I have an understanding now. I have an empathy now. But it also gave me hope because I now know there's things I can do to prevent somebody else from getting to that point if we're courageous enough to talk about those dark things that aren't glamorous. Well, when you were educating me on the the language to use, you said people don't commit cancer. Mm -mm. People don't commit other diseases that might take their lives. And we need to look at mental illness as a disease. And unfortunately, it takes people's lives. Yes, it does. Every day, you know, we lose 40,000 Americans to suicide, 800,000 people in the entire world. The fact that we haven't addressed this as as a citizen and as a community and as a nation and it's just as a a humanity is, is... mind-boggling to me because the amount of people if you were again to ask your circle of friends you know how many of you know somebody who's taken their life majority of you would say yes or you know somebody who struggled or had thoughts of or attempted and we need to bring this out we need to bring this out of the darkness you know when you talk about the disease when I teach kids I share this analogy because I think it makes sense you know for somebody living with a mental illness and what we've learned about people who do die by suicide is that 90 percent had a diagnosable psychiatric disorder when they died, most commonly depression. You know, and for a lot of us, we treat people with depression or different mental illnesses, again, as if it's a weakness. You know, come on, just focus on the bright side. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, happiness is a choice. All these things we say with good intention. But it would be like telling a diabetic, you know, if you write a gratitude list, you could regulate your insulin. You you could bring that insulin up to a normal level. You know, if you just choose to focus on the bright side, that insulin level would regulate itself. We would never say that to somebody with diabetes, yet we say it to people with mental illness all the time. Hmm. You're also a mother. Yes. You have two kids. Two kids. How old are they? My oldest is 19 and my youngest is 15. And, you know, I've, I've gotten to see how this, this mental illness thing also is like every other illness. It, it runs in our families. You know, not only do I live with depression, my father did. My dad had a sister that does and still does to this day. But my youngest son, you know, he struggles. He struggles with anxiety and, and different issues. But we were proactive now because of the lessons we've learned in our lives. We know what to do. And, and how to get somebody help. And by the way, that's what this issue is all about. Mm-hmm. This issue is about solutions. Yep. It's, it, yes, it's about awareness and education and compassion and empathy, but it's also about solutions and the word that you just used, being proactive. Yeah, proactive. 
again, if I'm sitting home with diabetes or cancer or another illness, you know, we learn about those illnesses. If I'm diagnosed with diabetes, a doctor tells me, hey, this is what you need to do to treat your illness. Well, we've got to start doing the same thing with mental illness. Right. You know, for years and years and years, we have treated the brain from doctors like psychiatrists. That's the doctor that is trained to give medication, to diagnose and, and help us when our brain is sick. Yet how often does that doctor actually look at a scan of the brain? Do right. they actually see what's going on with the brain? Instead, they're throwing medications at you to try to treat your behavior when maybe there's something chemically going on in the brain that's different or a structure inside Without the brain. ever scanning the yeah, brain. without ever what's looking What's interesting, at it. we'll scan teeth. Yeah. We'll scan bones. Yeah. But we don't look at the brain. But, but we here, never look at the brain. And yet the brain, mm -hmm. but we'll just, you know, guess yep. and throw some medication yep. at it without actually scanning it. Well, why don't we just guess at teeth? Exactly. No, we scan the teeth to see exactly what's going on. Yeah. And yet the brain controls every Absolutely. other function of the body. Yep. I, I listened to a gentleman by the name of Daniel Amen. And love him. I love him. He's right, right? down the street yes, from where we're him. doing this interview right now. He's two blocks away from here. Well, he shares an amazing story, you know, on one of his TED Talks about his nephew. He says, you know, here was a young man who, after getting in trouble at school at, at the age of, I believe, 10, for fighting with somebody on the playground, you know, goes home and, and they find drawings of this young man hanging in a tree and shooting other little kids. And at 10 years old, of course, that behavior, somebody would look at and go, whoa, what's going on? We need to, you know, figure this out. Well, typically a psychiatrist would have treated that child with a medication. Well, here, let's try this. Let's try this. Right. When his uncle, God bless him, scanned his brain, they found a cyst in his temporal lobe, you know, the size of a golf ball. There are reasons why our brain gets ill. And we have got to start looking and treating the brain the same way we treat every other organ in the body. You know, it's been isolated as its own separate animal when... Our brain is the most vital organ we have. And as human beings, I think it's the one we neglect the most. <laughs> uh, by the way, I challenge all of you to uh, look up on YouTube. It's a TED Talk. So I'm sure you all know what a TED Talk is. And if you don't, boy, open yourself up to an amazing world of education on YouTube. Uh, but his name is Daniel Amen, A-M-E-N. So mm -hmm. uh, look up that TED Talk on, on YouTube and you'll just be amazed as, as both Taryn and I were. Yeah. Now, just uh, I need you to brag a little bit here because, you know, Taryn isn't just somebody I just pulled off the street today. I've seen the press on you. I've seen you're like the, the go-to person, especially when there's a crisis, yeah. you know, and, oh, my gosh, this is a, a news story. We need somebody to come on to the news and talk mm -hmm. about this. We need somebody to speak at this conference to give us hope. We need somebody to meet one-on-one -on -one with uh, the parents of a 14-year-old boy who just committed suicide, and the whole school is now in trouble. Yeah. Well, you know, back in my state, when my father did go on to die by suicide, again, nobody was talking, and I vowed then and there that night that this was going to stop. So I became involved. I looked. I got online and, and Googled, you know, suicide prevention, suicide education. I wanted to know and understand how. How and why does this happen? And I came across an organization called the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and have volunteered with them for the last 13 years. And in doing so, you know, learned a tremendous amount of things, you know, the warning signs, the red flags, the risk factors, the same way we need to know those signs for any other kind of an illness. And, and you know, just became a voice. It's interesting. You know, I said a while back, you know, when, when that happened to me as a young kid, I lost my voice. I lost it for a long time. But I became a voice for suicide prevention because I wanted people to know and understand what caused it and what we could do to get ahead of it. And so, yeah, you're right. I, I have been a voice that people know they can come to and, and definitely, you know, share my story in hopes of helping somebody else. You know, I heard it said once that you can't hate someone once you know their story. Mm. And I know that to be true. You know, the more of us that can share where we've been and what we've done to heal, you know, it gives other people hope. Because a lot of us live just with these secrets all by ourselves thinking we're the only one and that no one else would know or no one else has been there when that is the biggest lie of all. And once we share that, our, our brains learn that there's other people who've been where we've been. Hmm. And it takes the power away from some of those thoughts that we, that we keep to ourselves. I recently had Taryn speak at uh, a huge conference uh, for my company, my organization, that had you know, 300 leaders in that audience. And before she spoke, I asked those in the audience who have had some type of experience in their own lives, whether them personally or with their family or loved ones, 
uh, an experience with mental illness or with suicide. And uh, I think the entire audience stood up. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing. There's nobody that is not impacted when it comes to this. You know, I, I, I always share, too, you know, if you think back to even just last year, you know, when Robin Williams died, how many people were affected by that death? How many people looked from the outside and went, but what do you mean? You had it all. You've got all this money. Why would you be sad? You're the funny guy. You're the funny guy. And he was, you know, Mrs. Yeah. Doubtfire. How many of us loved that movie? He made right. us giggle. But he also, what we learned, you know, was somebody living with some serious mental illness, you know, right. and the brain gets sick. The brain gets sick, but it can also get better. We have got to become advocates for treatment of the brain in a way that restores its health. And those options are out there. But until we can get our government to realize that this is an issue that needs our focus and attention. Okay, so before we jump into this, again, just I need you, because normally I would read off your bio. Sure. I would say, oh, Taryn's done this, she's done this. I haven't done that today. I'm going to ask you to do that. So in the last, since you found your voice, <laughs> uh, you helped to found the Utah chapter yeah. for AFSP. Yep. So the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We I, found I've it seen our, TV our interviews. I've yeah. seen newspaper articles on you. So just, you know, put your ego aside right now <laughs> or, or bring your sure. ego out okay. <laughs> and tell sure. our listeners everything that you've accomplished just in the last several years. Oh, my gosh. So in the last several years, we founded a chapter. We have brought thousands of dollars um, to our state locally through a walk that we do every year, which has also brought thousands of people out to honor loved ones that they've lost. You know, I sit on the State Suicide Prevention Coalition and have been known as a go-to when we have issues, and, and we provide programs into our community. I've trained thousands of EMS, you know, emergency personnel. I've talked with military soldier men and women. You Why know, military? Because we lose 22 veterans a day. Disgusting. 22 veterans a day to suicide. We lose more of our first responders and our veterans and military men and women to suicide than in the active line of duty. That's unacceptable. It is unacceptable because you would think, oh, these are the strong people. Yep. These are the people who have the courage to put their lives in danger every single day. Of course, they would never suffer from sure. mental illness or depression or thoughts of suicide. And what you're telling us right now is that statistically they're highest they're the highest and let's look at why we will never in our lifetime you and i will never in our lifetime see or do some of the things these people have had to see and do and yet they come back from war they come back from these countries and we just expect them to go on back to it just right. integrate right back into society and yes because you're the strong one you don't get to be weak you don't get to be sad you don't get to tell us that you had a hard time you know, I had a little brother that came back from Iraq, and I remember watching him as he returned. He was not the same person he was when he left. Mm -hmm. And I know he saw and witnessed things that I will never have to see and witness. Mm -hmm. But to get him to open up took time because he didn't think he could. Because he, he kept that, that bravado of, but I have to be the tough one. I'm the one that protects people. I right. don't get to be weak. Right. And that's what we have to change. And how many people feel that way? Yeah. I'm the parent. Yep. I can't be weak. I'm the single mom. I can't be weak. Yeah. I'm the teacher and mentor. I'm the life of the party. Yeah. I can't be weak. So why you have to change the fact that we look at mental illness as being weak? Why mm. would we? We don't look at somebody with cancer and go, oh, you're weak because you got cancer. Oh, maybe if you tried harder, you wouldn't have got cancer. But right. we do that right. to ourselves. We have right. treated that the focus needs to shift at how we look at the brain. You know, when our brain gets sick, it manifests itself in behavior. Maybe that's why it's so hard for us as society to understand it. Because people we love will do things that are hurtful. People we love will behave in ways that we don't understand. But we've got to have an understanding of the brain mm -hmm. and why they're behaving in the way they are. Alzheimer's, that's a disease of the brain. We don't look at those people and judge them. Why are we doing the same for somebody with depression, OCD, a panic disorder? Right. You know, it has to change. It has to change. So here's another call to action to people listening to this right now. Make a decision right now that you are going to be a safe place, that you're going to be an educated go-to person for the people in your life that suffer, mm -hmm. which also means you have to become aware. You have yeah. to become aware of the fact that people are suffering around you, yeah. but they can't talk about it. Well, maybe they can feel safe with you and... and, and feel like they can come to you to talk about it, which means you have to educate yourself. You know, you did a, a seminar, a program with my network about six months ago, 
And if I could just shut up right now and just say, Taryn, do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do the exact same speech that you did back then would be so, so valuable right now. So jump into it, baby. Well, you know, what I would share first and foremost is, again, we've got to get rid of the myths. You know, the myths that people who die by suicide are selfish, that they're cowardly, and that they took the easy way out. By us sharing that and perpetuating that, no one living with a mental illness or thoughts of suicide is going to come forward. So that's the first step in helping to be a safe person is you no longer share that that's the way you feel. If it is the way you feel, hopefully today I'll say something that will change that thought. You know what? Change your mind. Yep. Change your mind. Yesterday, I used to believe Mm -hmm. and even maybe voice that somebody who committed suicide was a coward, that they took the easy way out. But today, I changed my My mind. mind. I love that. That is not me anymore. You know, the other myth is that people who talk about suicide aren't serious, that they only do it for attention. And when I hear that, I get pissed because if somebody needs attention... Give it to them. Give it to them. If somebody needs attention, give it to them. Because if you think about it, every one of us is walking around this earth with a sign on our chest that says, make me feel important and let me know I matter. So when somebody is mentioning it, take it seriously. You know, we talk all the time about people who talk about suicide not being serious. People who talk about suicide usually attempt and often complete And we see that most, 50% of people who die by suicide told somebody about their death, told somebody of their intention. But because it was dismissed, because it wasn't taken seriously, it became an act. And people tell us in other ways besides words. That's the thing we have to get out there. People tell us by their mood. When we see mood changes, whether it's happy, sad, you know, mad, people tell us by their behavior, you know, if they're behaving in a way that is different than things they normally used to do, or anything that causes you to go, hmm, giving away things that matter to them, tidying up affairs, saying their goodbyes, looking for ways to hurt themselves online, you know, engaging in behavior that's just risky. I joke, but it's serious. If I saw my mom at Walmart in sweats and a ponytail, that is not normal behavior for my mother. I would kindly escort her to my car and we would go to the doctor immediately and find out what was going on with Jill because she does not behave that way. So when you see a behavior that makes you go, hmm, you ask. You know, the other thing we see a ton of is life, life situation. You know, I always ask, who in here has experienced a stressful life event? Well, every one of us has. And what's stressful to me might be a hill of beans to you, but it doesn't make it any less stressful for the person experiencing it. Meaning getting fired from a job, job, a divorce, divorce, a a breakup, breakup, anything. You know, I I share this story, but it, it was so valuable to me to learn the lesson. You know, my son, his senior year in high school, you know, had had a love, you know, his first love. They dated that whole year. And and as it got close to his graduation, you know, they ended up breaking up and he was devastated, you know, devastated. Now, for any person, had he done something, they would have looked at the breakup and said, oh, it's because he had this breakup. He just couldn't cope. And, And yes, the breakup was traumatic, but he also lives with anxiety. He also has family history of suicidality. He also was abusing drugs and alcohol at that time. Suicide is complex. There's never one reason. There's never one thing. There's usually a multitude of things going on. And the person is at a point where their crisis point has been reached, and they just don't see any way out. You know, I also heard it said, and I believe this to be true, that people who are suicidal, it is not that they want to die. They just don't know how to live with what's happening right now. That's why we have to be a voice. When we observe things, we say, wow, you know what? When I, I noticed the last few days, you just haven't been yourself. You know, you're, you're isolating. You're quieter than you usually are. I know that you've had some rough things going on at your family, you know, and sometimes when people experience what you have, they think about suicide. Have you thought about that? We ask. We ask the question. It's okay to ask. It's okay to ask. The myth is out there that if we talk to somebody about suicide, they do it. Well, that was the myth we had about sex. If we talk to our kids about sex, they do it. Well, how many of us were doing it anyway? You know, we're not that powerful as human beings. Talking about it gives somebody permission to say, yeah, I am. I am. Now what do I do? Because just like any other thought, 
I'm sure you've experienced them. I know I do on a daily basis. Some days my brain will think something that I go, whoa, if I told anybody what I just thought right now, they'd probably come and haul me off and lock me up. And if I allow that thought to stay, it gains power. But when I share that thought with somebody, it loses steam. That was a great statement. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Because people listening to this think, well, I don't have the answers. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to fix them. But that's not what you're telling people to do. It's not your job to fix. Because most likely, whatever has got that person at the point of suicidal crisis, you can't fix it anyway. So just because you're asking them, hey, are you having these thoughts? Are you struggling right now? And if they say yes doesn't mean that you now have to have the answers to fix it. You no. don't have to have the answers. No. In fact, you're not supposed to have the answers. Nope. What are you supposed to do? Tell you be us. a friend and you listen. Talk to me. Tell me what's got you so upset. Tell me what's happening in your life that has you thinking about suicide. And give the person time to talk, which means I shut up and I listen. I don't judge. I don't give advice. Because again, It's not my role. My role is to be there as a friend and as a support. I probably don't have all the answers. Do you you refer to those? Yes, yes. And how do you do that? Do you you ask permission? Absolutely. Can we go? Absolutely. Can we go together to a doctor? Can I accompany you? Let's find somebody to talk to. Who do you feel that has your back? Who do you feel in your life that would support you? Who can we tell? And definitely a mental health professional. You know, I refer all the time to the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's a phone call. You and your friend can sit there and you make a phone call and you call this 800 number that gets a live trained person on the phone that could perform an intervention. So that's, that's nationwide? Nationwide. What is it? So it's 800-273-TALK. 800-273-TALK. And again, those numbers are answered locally. So if I call in Utah, it's answered in Utah by somebody who has access to every mental health resource at the click of a button. If I call in California, it's answered in California with that same capability. So it's not like you have to have a Rolodex of the best psychiatrists and therapists in that community. It's one phone number. It's one phone call. And they have the resources. Yep, and then they have the resources to connect you. Not only that, they can perform an intervention and see how serious the risk is. Some people have a thought, and maybe it's just a thought. But maybe other people have gone further. Maybe they have the thought every day, and now they have a plan. Now they have means. So what do we do to keep that person safe? And again, you don't have to have the answers. This is a phone call you can make to get somebody who does. I think that's a good, powerful message right there, Mm -hmm. that we don't have to have the answers. Well, I think about it. Think when you were a teenager. You know, it still happens to us as adults. On those days when you had the worst day ever and you got home and you tried to talk to mom or dad and all they tried to do is give you advice and you just shut down, right? You're like, oh, don't tell me how to fix it. Because you didn't need anybody to. You we are just so bad at that. needed someone to listen. Or at least I'm bad at that. I am too. Because <laughs> oh. I'm a fixer. I'm a codependent. I'm paid. <laughs> My career is right? to... I, I get paid to give mm-hmm. advice. Yep. And I just have to shut up. Yep. I just have to be a friend. You just have to be a friend. Mm. You know, one of my favorite videos, and this will give you some some comic relief, it's not about the nail. You've seen that on YouTube? Uh Uh-uh. It's not about the nail. What is it? Oh, my hell. Sorry. (laughs) You have to watch it. It's just, it's a great reminder of what it means to be a friend. That even though we might see the glaring issue and problem, it's not our job to fix it. Mm. Our job is to just listen. Because just like somebody with thoughts of suicide isn't necessarily intent on dying, Maybe they could even talk themselves out of it once they start to hear what it is that's got them there, you know, and take away, again, some of the power of the thought they're having. You gave us statistics. 800,000 people die by suicide every year. Someone dies by suicide every 40 seconds. I mean, these are... And then the statistics about our military, Mm -hmm. our first responders. Um, That's, you know, pretty powerful. What, What more do we need to know? We just need to know that this is a public health issue, and it is high time that we get involved and do something. You know, it's also estimated for every suicide, there's 25 people who attempt. And if you think of the chaos and the wreckage that leaves behind in people's lives, you know, you're a survivor, I'm a survivor. The death of our loved one didn't just impact us. We know the ripple effect it had for generations and for years. The loss of life is great. 
because every life matters. And this is something we've got to get ahead of. You know, our government years ago when there was an epidemic, HIV, right? It was, it was sweeping. We knew that this was something killing people. So what did we do? Well, we funded research. We found out what caused it. We got behind it. You know, we provided prevention measures for people. Our government spent $150,000 a person to understand HIV and AIDS. They spend $1,000 a person right now to understand suicide and mental illness. That is unacceptable. I know the obvious answer, but why is that? Because we haven't looked at it as an issue. Because, again, we've treated the brain as something that we have control over, that it's a choice, and that it's, and it is a choice, but sometimes a choice being made by a sick brain. So until we can get some research to better understand why people get to that point, how are we ever going to get ahead of this? You also said that there's no single cause, but rather multiple intersecting factors for suicide. Yes. You know, it would be nice if there was just one thing. You know, and for those of us who've lost loved ones, we've done the replay. We've played it back, trying to see coulda, shoulda, woulda. You know, what did I miss? What what could I have done? You know, and I know now, looking back, all the signs I missed, and I did miss them. But you better believe, even though I can't help my father and I can't help some of the people I have lost, there's a lot that I can help now because I do know and I am aware. You know, the statistic that says that 9 out of 10 people or 90% of folks who die by suicide had a mental illness That's a hopeful statistic to me, because if 90% of the people dying had something wrong in their brain, well, then we can do something about that. We can do something about that. But we've got to get rid of the stigma, because only 10% of those people are actually getting treatment for their mental illness, because, again, the way we look at it. And yet, what percentage of people with cancer are getting treatment? Yeah. And we are not separating the topics of suicide from mental illness right now. Mm Mm-mm. No, it's one in the same. Unfortunately, the way somebody dies from a mental illness is suicide. Okay. It's one in the same. Sometimes I wonder, is what's an easier topic? And that might not be the best way to ask that question. What's an easier topic, suicide or mental illness? Mm-hmm. I think mental illness, probably. But they need to be looked at the same. You know, and really the shift that takes place is instead of focusing even on mental illness, let's focus on how do we help people live mentally well? How do we help people who are in a crisis find support? How do we help people who are struggling with an illness find the medications or the doctors or the treatment that's even out there? You know, how do we support people when they're having a hard time? Mm -hmm. Instead of turning our back and it's not my business and somebody else will do it and ignoring an issue that's right there in front of us. It's interesting, the research that I've done on mental illness, the same treatment, so to speak, Mm -hmm. to prevent mental illness or to address mental illness i.e. removing the triggers, mm-hmm. <laughs> are some of the same things that the rest of the entire planet should be living by. Yeah, exactly. Meaning the things that could lead up to a struggle mm-hmm. with somebody who is already suffering from a mental illness, i.e. bad relationships, mm-hmm. uh, lack of sleep, yep. toxic relationships, <laughs> drug and alcohol oh, abuse, yes. and that's a big clutter one right around yeah. the house, yeah. those all of us should be living by those mm-hmm. things. Yep. We need protective factors. I right. mean, that's part of us having a healthy, and that's the thing we need to create is a culture that's smarter about mental wellness. You know, we're smarter about how we live mentally well. Okay, take us to the next, because we've talked about statistics. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like we've uh, addressed research? Yeah, enough? like I say, the research, there, there is a lot of research being done by private organizations, such as the organization I volunteer for. But you guys, we need to get our government behind us. There's a huge mental health care reform bill before our Senate and Congress right now that if it could pass, it would transform people's care. And, ha- and people just don't know and aren't aware of what's out there. You know, you asked, what are some of the things I've done? Well, I went and testified before a congressional hearing back in Washington, D.C., And I told my story because it needs to be told. What was that like? It was, (laughs) it was emotional. It was scary, but it was needed. I had a multitude of congressmen and women walk up to me after and share their own stories of their family members living with mental illness, their families who have experienced this, the need that they see for this to change. Yet what I hear all the time is we just don't hear from people. We don't know that this is an issue that matters because we don't hear from people. I think so often we discount what our voice means or we think our vote doesn't count. It does. Mm. And if we don't tell these people what we need them to be doing and, and what could change and transform health care, how I've, do they know? I've known you for how long now? Oh, my gosh, since 20 years. 20 years. 
So I've seen you as you've seen me. Mm-hmm. We go through our... Yep. Uh, Ebbs and flows. That's exactly. The nice there, we there, we, there we go. There we go. There we go. There we go. And yet right now it's just you and I sitting here mm-hmm. talking and you have told your story to Congress. Mm-hmm. You have told your story to the press. Mm-hmm. You have told your story to countless audiences. Mm-hmm. And yet as you're telling your story to me right now, you're struggling. Mm-hmm. You're emotional. Yeah. You're compromised. Yeah. Because it means I have to be vulnerable. It means I have to let people in. It means I have to face who and what I have become in my own illness, too. Because, you know, part of the illness I suffer from isn't just depression. I chose to self-medicate. You know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And and in that disease of addiction, you know, you know, I I created chaos in the lives of those I loved. Not intentionally. Not that I wanted to, but that's part of what I did. And and having to face those things and and be okay now and, and... and change is hard, and being vulnerable, and putting yourself out there is hard because then you're you're up for attack. <laughs> you're up for attack. Oh gosh! And people like to do that, darn it. Uh, yes, they do. <laughs> yes, they do. Okay, so let's get into uh, prevention. Okay. Well, prevention is something that's possible by every one of us. You know, as we look at prevention, it's important to understand again the risk factors. Okay, what puts people at risk? We know that there's historical things, meaning what's happened in your life. There's environmental things, things that are happening now, and what health situations you're currently living with. You know, it's also important that we understand that there's protective factors. You know, there's things that people can engage in that protect them. You know, if you have family support, if you have a religion, you know, or a culture that surrounds you and supports you, that's a protective factor. Like you'd mentioned, you know, getting rest, sleep, you know, exercise, things that help us feel better, those are protective factors. Limiting access, limiting access to lethal means for people who are struggling. That is a protective factor. Speak. So if we talk about that, you know, we look at our, we don't have guns in the house. You know, when my son was struggling, it was, I know you're a hunter. Guess what? I'm taking your guns right now until you're in a state where you're safe again, because I don't want you to have access to something that in that moment you could do something and react and then never be able to take it back. You know, the Golden Gate Bridge is a beautiful, beautiful structure that 2,000 people have used as a means to end their life. And up until this year, we have not even looked at putting a a, a net underneath that because it would take away from the beauty, is what our our government says. Yet there's a young man by the name of Kevin Hines who survived his own attempt by jumping off that bridge and is now a mental wellness advocate who has single-handedly organized a $76 million bond that will now put a barrier on that bridge so that people's lives can be saved. You know, that's how we prevent. Mm. And we prevent by knowing. We know what to look for. We recognize the signs, and when we recognize the warning signs, we act. We act and we ask. We ask the person if they're feeling suicidal. Mm. What else? Preventive. Preventive, we need to look at mental health care strategies. You know, what are people doing to care for themselves mentally? What are treatments that are available right now? Again, the, the notion that if I go see a counselor, it means I'm weak. No, I think every one of us needs somebody oh that we could, we could pay to, to listen to us, you know. And, listening to this, that. <laughs> and as a hairdresser, I was a counselor for 20 years, oh you gosh. know. I heard we all, everybody's stuff. We all need stuff. to have our little stints. Sometimes I, for one session, sometimes for, for multiple many. years, yep, and sometimes... Many over and over again, have our little uh, stay mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> with a, a mental illness yep. professional. And, and be given a break. You know, yeah. I, I hear people sometimes who are really feeling suicidal say, well, but I don't want to tell anybody I am because what if they lock me up? What if they put me away? And I say, you know what is the worst thing really? That for a few days you go to a hospital. For right. a few days you get to check out of life and have a break to yeah. focus on you. Is that really the worst thing that could happen? There's obviously no way we're going to be able to completely address this in in such a short period of time, you know, a 70-minute interview. And another call to action is people do your research. Yeah. But, you know, take us into this idea on how we can save a life. Yeah. Well, how you can save a life is you know what to look for. You know, I, I say this all the time to help people correlate the difference, but are you familiar with CPR? 
right? Most of us are. Uh-huh. We know that it's a life-saving measure we can do when somebody is in a physical health crisis that we, helps to sustain We get training, we're certified, yep, we know what to do. Right. Well, there's those same kind of trainings that are out there for mental health crisis, but oh. I don't have to be certified in order to know the warning signs. Okay. So to know the warning signs is I understand how people tell. Again, people tell us that they're struggling in ways other than words, like we talked. They tell us in ways by their behavior, you know, things that we learn about their life, their mood, um, what's happening. And when we see those warning signs, the talk, the behavior, and the mood, again, we ask. You know, we trust our gut. We were all born with a little thing called intuition. We can sense when somebody's energy is off. We can sense when somebody's having a hard time, even if it's a complete stranger. How many times do you walk past somebody just on the street where you know you see them either crying or visibly upset, yet we just keep walking? As opposed to maybe stopping and saying, are you okay? How can I help? What can I do? You know, we act. We assume that nobody else is going to do it. You know, I, I share this story, and this will help to kind of tie all these points together. You know, a couple years ago, there was a young man at my daughter's junior high school who took his life. This is a young man that at age 13 had, you know, parents going through a divorce, obviously a traumatic incident, shows up to school the next morning and, and tells his little friend, here, here's my magic cards. These are for you. And his so little, something that was valuable something that to was him, valuable. he's giving them he's away. He's giving them away. And his friend says, but wait a minute. These are your most favorite thing. Why would you give these to me? Well, I don't need them anymore. What do you mean you don't need them anymore? Well, I'm moving. You're moving? Where are you moving? Heaven. Heaven. Now, this little boy that he told doesn't know that, wow, somebody giving away something that matters to them is a sign. Somebody talking about leaving or not being here anymore is a sign. So he didn't act. He didn't say anything. So here's a little boy that probably already feels rejected and alone. He's telling people in the only way he knows how, by giving away stuff, hoping you're going to notice. But because nobody knows what to look for, nobody acts. So it only affirms to him, I don't matter. And he goes home and he takes his life. You know, the next morning I show up to the junior high school to be of support and to help, as you'd shared. And as I walk in the front office, I see a little boy in the corner sobbing. And this child was probably 250 pounds, easy, just sobbing. And I walk over and I say, you know what, I know you don't know me, but could I give you a hug? And his little eyes look up at me and he says, yes. And as I put my arms around him and hug him, Over and over, he says, who's going to sit by me on the bus? Who's going to sit by me on the bus? He was the only one who sat by me on the bus. And my heart broke. Because that, right there, when people ask me, how do I really save a life? That's it right there, is human connection. Human connection. Here yesterday, this little boy thought that nobody cared about him, yet his simple act of parking his butt on a seat next to this other kid who was probably teased and made fun of because he was, what, different, made this little kid feel seen. How often do we walk through our lives with people that just need to know that they are seen? I hear it said all the time that people who are living with suicidal thoughts, I myself even felt this way. Or sometimes we wake up that morning and go, I just wonder, I wonder, today might be the day, but let's see. Let's see who really notices me in my life. Let's see who really cares about me. And because we're not affirmed or we're not noticed, our lie that our brain has been telling us is now true. We don't matter. Everybody would be better off because nobody even noticed me today. So that's how I can be a prevention advocate as I notice people. You know, I go out of my way, sometimes probably a little too much, but I go out of my way to notice people. When you sometimes ask people, and knowing you, your questions are probably (laughs) right to the point. Mm -hmm. Are you okay? Are you Mm -hmm. struggling? Do you have thoughts of suicide? Mm -hmm. Do you sometimes get the response back from that person like, Taryn, come on, you're Mm -hmm. just being dramatic. Sure, sure. And I How does that make you feel? You know, if they ask me if I'm being dramatic, I say, no, I, I care about you. And maybe you're not right now, but if you ever are, I'm somebody you can talk to. And I'm somebody that's safe. You know, I'm very vocal, and I'm known as the suicide lady. I keep telling the people that call me that. Could we come up with a better name? Could we call me the prevention lady? uh, Too many dates, by the way. I'm going to go out with the suicide lady. I know. Right. 
but I'm known because I talk. You know, when mm. I'm trolling Facebook like we all do, I watch what people post. Wow. How many times have we noticed a post that has yeah. us concerned? People post that stuff. People mm. post when they're having a hard time. Mm-hmm. Yet what do we notice most times is people either scroll right on by or they like it, but no comment given. Well, I'm the one that comments, hey, your post has me concerned. Wow. The things you shared have me concerned that you might be thinking of suicide. How can I help you? What yeah. can I do? I'm here. I'll listen. I've had many a phone conversation, many a Facebook message conversation, allowing somebody just to share what's going on because I took the time to notice. Hmm. What else? How else can we save lives? How else we save lives is when we ourselves are struggling, we reach out. We be the example. We show people that it's okay to not be okay. That when we're having a hard time, we rely on our support system. We find those people in our lives that we trust that can keep us safe. And we let people in when we're having a hard time. You know, none of us were meant to go through this life all by ourselves. And sometimes when I ask people, you know, well, who do you feel in your life has your back? Maybe no one. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe no one. Which is maybe why they post it publicly Mm -hmm. on a Facebook. Because they want to know maybe who does. I do feel lucky, and I have reached out to a very, very, very small circle of friends, Mm -hmm. people that I trust when I'm struggling, Mm -hmm. you know, friends and family. But it's a very small group. Because you want to tell somebody that you know you can be safe with, and that's what we encourage people. So be that person. Be the person that is safe Mm -hmm. because you know what to do. Like you shared in the beginning, you know, you're not there to fix it. That's not your role. Your role is just to be there, to listen, and to guide that person to help. I call the lifeline and use that tool all the time. You know, put a resource in somebody's hand that when you're not there, they still know, hey, this is an option for me. I can call. I can get help. It doesn't have to stay this way. But, you know, one of the things I hear all the time, too, that people say, again, well-intentioned, I'm sure, is, well, don't you know that suicide is just a permanent solution to a temporary problem? And while that may be true, you minimize people's pain because maybe they don't think it's temporary. Maybe they don't see any way out. Maybe they don't see earlier, they they just don't know how to live. Yep, they just don't know how to get out of the situation right then. So, again, we find hope. We find hope by putting tools in their hands, by giving them resources. We find hope becoming communities that it's safe to talk about this, that we don't keep it as a secret. We don't be ashamed if we lost a loved one this way. There's no shame in how they died. Mm -hmm. Let's honor them for how they lived Mm -hmm. and remember the courageous people that they were. You know, sometimes as we're out there, you're educating us to look for the signs. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes the signs aren't pleasant. Sometimes the signs aren't can I talk to you? And I'm sobbing through my story. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the signs are really, really ugly yep. and angry yep. and even violent and other things. Talk us through that. Well, I think a lot of times what happens when you're, when it is in that place, you know, again, first and foremost, you have to be safe. You know, you have to be safe. If you're feeling threatened or not safe with the person that is having a hard time, by all means, you know, excuse yourself from the situation and and find somebody else that can help. You know, I tell people all the time if they're struggling and and you're worried about somebody but your safety is at risk, call 911. Call the police. You know, ask for a crisis intervention trained officer to come out and meet with this person. Most crisis lines now have outreach where if you call, they'll come out to you and actually visit with the person right then and there and can do an assessment and, again, be a support for you so you're not in it by yourself. You know, it is hard. And mental illness is not pretty. You know, again, because it's our brain that's sick, we behave in a way that isn't normal Mm -hmm. and isn't kind and isn't always loving. And we can also choose to not get help. We can choose to say, nope, I got this, or I'm fine, or screw you, I don't want to go down this road. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not an easy battle, and I'm not here to pretend that it is. It's something that takes faith and patience and diligence, you know, to let those people know that they're not by themselves. When you're challenging people to be aware and to be the person that notices, the person that asks, you said, you know, trust your gut and assume that you're the only one who is going to reach out. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Assume that nobody else is going to, because I think a lot of times we see something and we think, oh, well, pff, that's not my job, or that's not somebody my, else you will know, somebody notice. else will take care of I'm it, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to get involved, that's weird. You know, I had an experience the other day where I'm walking down the, the halls of a high school, you know, I'd been there after several suicides in that community, and as I'm walking, I, I pass a young lady who's who's crying, and my first instinct as I passed her was like, 
stop. And then I started telling myself, okay, no, she doesn't know you. That's weird. You, what are you going to say? And I start talking myself out of it and then wait, no, stop. And as I asked this young lady, hey, are you okay? She says, no, I'm not. I just got out of the car. Me and my mom got in a fight. I called her the B word. You know, I'm feeling awful about that. And I says, oh gosh, guess what? We all have those days. It's okay. You know what you can do? We call your mom. You know, we can fix it. It's not, it's, it's okay. I listened. I listened. It wasn't suicide, but she needed somebody just to notice. Right. You know, and as I walked away from that, that exchange, she just said, thank you. Thank you for noticing me. Thank you for stopping. Could you help us create a list of what to do versus not to do, sure. what to avoid mm-hmm. doing. Some of it we've already talked about that, thinking that we have to fix it. Yeah. So give us a list. What Again, to avoid. be a listener. You know, a lot of times we want to minimize somebody's feelings. Don't. Allow them to have whatever feeling it is. Feelings are just that. It's a feeling. It's neither right or wrong. Allow them to feel it. Again, it's not your role to fix it or convince them to live. Your role is just to be there as a support and help them maybe find their own ways and their own rights and wants to to live. And avoid judgment, you know. Listen with with an open heart, with an open mind. Again, not coming from a place of trying to fix or or condemn, you know. Let, Let that person be in whatever area and space that they're in and just be there as somebody who can listen. You know, I've heard it said, too, that there is no greater act than that of just acknowledgement. You know, just saying, I'm here and I'm willing to be here as long as it takes, as ugly as it is. I'm not going anywhere. You're not alone is big. Are there certain cultures or organizations or groups that need to heighten their awareness and their education? Like, oh, absolutely. Is, like certain groups or religious yes i think there's a lot of religious groups you know unfortunately we do see high rates of suicide in populations of folks that are different you know so we do see higher rates of suicide in in our lgbt you know our young people that are, are lesbian gay bisexual transgender the lack of acceptance and tolerance that they feel from their families sometimes from their their cultures their religions oftentimes But the thing that we're learning and understanding is this is something that is everybody's business. It takes every single one of us to be aware of what to look for, not just moms, not just dads, not just doctors, not just clergy. You know, it takes every one of us. Because just like the saying that it takes a village to raise a child, well, it takes a village to save one. It takes a village to save one. And it takes all of us knowing what to look for and being a voice for those who are suffering. So what do we need to know about creating a culture that's smart about mental health and suicide prevention. Again, I have, I have a business, I have a company, for-profit mm-hmm. company, that is an organization, for-profit, again. Sure. I can say, well, it's none of my business, we're here to make money. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who belong to that organization, sure. whether they're customers or employees mm-hmm. or owners or whatever, What do we need to do to create a smart culture that addresses, that creates open dialogues or safe places for mental illness and suicide prevention? One is we talk about it, you know, become educated. You know, there's trainings that can be brought to your companies, can be brought to your places of business where you're educated on the warning signs and you can become what we call an alert helper. You now know an alert alert helper helper, because you're alert to the possibility that something could be going on and you help. You're helpful. You know, as as companies, we can also encourage mental wellness activities within our organizations. What what does that mean? What if I have a yoga day? What if I have a meditation day? What practices can I bring to my people? What if I pay for the gym membership? membership. Right. To encourage you to do something to give back to yourself. Right. You know, self-care is huge. And most of us live our lives neglecting ourselves because we're too busy taking care of everybody else. But if my tank's empty at the end of the day and I have nothing left to give... What can I do to refill my own bucket? What can I do to fill that own void in myself? So I think mental wellness, you know, what activities can we engage in as a culture to help people practice living mentally well? See, I like that. We're not just talking about mental illness. Mm -hmm. We're talking about mental wellness. wellness. Yeah, wellness. What have you need to change in your life personally? Personally? You already shared with us, and thank you for having the courage to do so, that you're I work now, a program you're of clean and sober. Yep, 20, 29 months today. Congratulations. And really? you know, 29 months today. 
And that's the longest I've been since I was 12 years old. And wow. that is a, a miracle. And, you know, it's because I finally... Owned. But you still struggle with that. Mm-hmm. You know, which is... Actually, I think I already told you this. When I had you first speak, and I think you had shared, I don't know, at that time, that you had maybe just a couple of months mm-hmm. of sobriety. And somebody said to me, why is she speaking? She's struggling. I'm like, who else? <laughs> if not her, then who? Yeah. You know, it's because we need we need people to share their stories and show right. that recovery is possible. So I practice a program of recovery. There's things that I do every single day to treat the disease I have of alcoholism. There's things I do every single day that help me promote my own mental wellness so that when depression does come back and does kick in, I have a plan. I have family and friends around me that are aware of what my triggers are. So when they see me behaving in those ways, they know to say, hey, Taryn, check in with me. How's things going? I've had to be very vocal you know, about my addiction because I need people to help hold me accountable. Right. I need people to know that it's today's a hard day, you know, and for me to ask for help is a big deal. I don't Any, do anytime that. Anytime <laughs> I stand on the stage and have the opportunity to share with people what I do every single day, because what I tell people, I don't tell people that I'm suicidal because I'm not. Mm-hmm. But what I do tell them is that I struggle with happiness every single day, and here's my routine every single day of what I have to do, which includes a good breakfast, it includes the gym, it includes calling my mom, mm-hmm. it includes a whole bunch of things. What are some of the things that you do? Because you have yep. suffered yep. with uh, thoughts of suicide and even attempts. You have suffered yep. with addictions, which I have as well. What are the, some of the things that you do personally on a daily basis to maintain mental wellness? Absolutely. Well, before I even let my feet touch the floor, I meditate. You know, I meditate. I listen to different meditations, music, you know, for at least a good 10, 15 minutes to just try to calm my heart and my mind. I practice yoga. That has been a huge thing for me. One, because it helps me to focus, which is something I need help with. And I love the fact of, of a yoga practice is... I'm one of those that when I'm standing in front of a mirror with a bunch of other sweaty people, instantly I'm looking around and I'm comparing myself. And those days are not good days for me in yoga. (laughs) But the days that I go and I say, okay, no, I'm going to focus on Taryn. What can Taryn do? Those are the days that I get the most out of it because I'm not doing that game we do where we compare ourselves to everybody else. You know, I read positive books. I listen. It's funny. Anymore when I drive in my car, I don't listen to music. I used to listen to music all the time because I think I needed the noise to quiet my mind, mm-hmm. I need peace and quiet. And most times driving now in my car, it's just quiet. And I just take in the silence because mm-hmm. I'm okay for it just to be quiet. Mm-hmm. I spend time with my kids. You know, I, I do things that fill my bucket. I'm a voice for suicide prevention because that matters to me, to help somebody else. And every day, my That's first prayer, my prayer in the morning says, please, God, put me in the lives of somebody that I can be of use to today. And every day... That shows up. Every day that shows up. <laughs> what did he say? Be careful what, what you, you ask, ask for. Because you might get it. <laughs> Some days I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not going to ask what, for what that is, What does Kathy Buckley say? She says, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then everything's different. Yeah. So. And by the way, you know, um, I have reached out to you on multiple occasions uh, whether it was something close to home, uh, a family member or a staff member or the family of a staff member, even very recently, mm-hmm. who uh, died of suicide. And even, I think there was recently, a, I didn't know this woman, I just barely met her, and it wasn't even her family member. It was a kid at the high school where her kid goes to school who had died of suicide, and I said, Taryn, can you reach out? And you did. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, and I appreciate that. Those are opportunities for me to give back. Those are opportunities for me to be with somebody else who needs some support at that time. And Taryn, do you have a final those. message for our listeners? You know, my final message would just be that there's a very vital ingredient that we were all given in this life, and that ingredient is hope. And it's the one ingredient that when we lose, everything falls apart. But I know it's also the saving grace that can bring us back. So find out for you what gives you hope. you got to know. And the days when it's lost, it's okay to reach out and ask for help and tell somebody, you know, I can't find my hope today. Maybe you can help me find some. Because I know that that's the one ingredient that saved my life. Find some purpose and meaning 
and be courageous. You know, if you're struggling, if you're listening to this right now and you've contemplated ending your life, if you've had those dark thoughts, let today be the day that you do something different. Let today be the day that you find somebody that you can tell. And if you can't tell somebody in your life, call that number. Call the lifeline. Reach out and ask because your life matters. Your life matters. I love that message of, of hope. You know, when I read even books on like Victor Frankl's mm-hmm. about surviving, me, yeah. surviving the Holocaust, the one ingredient was hope that people could be just at their lowest, 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 lowest. But mm-hmm. if there's a little bit of hope, then okay, maybe maybe there's a solution here. And I like what you shared that uh, we can be the person who gives that person hope. Yeah. Even if it's <laughs> even if it's temporary, as, yeah, and, <laughs> even, and even if it's a stranger, yeah. a stranger yeah. that we're passing on the street, that we just see something's not right here. No, it's not my job. Yes, it is your job. Yeah. And it could take just a few short moments to give that person a little bit of hope because somebody yeah. noticed. Yeah. You had said it earlier, and uh, you know, when asked that question of Ogmandino to name one thing that could help people be more successful, he said, "Just imagine that." Every person you come into contact with is wearing a little label that says, make me feel important. (sighs) Well, I'm a mess. You need to reapply. (laughs) But, you know, thank you so much. Thank goodness that we had the courage to, uh, to have this interview. Thank you. Love you, sweetheart. 